The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. We're calling this study uh, Kingdom Come. Uh, we've been in chapter four now for, uh, for three weeks. This is our third week in chapter four. Now this is a, it's an interesting chapter. This is a chapter we've been calling this the personal testimony of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. In, in, he is telling people, uh, all peoples, nations, languages that dwell on the earth, he's telling them about the good works that the Most High God had done on his behalf. And so we've been looking at his story. He had this dream of a tree and, and he was, it was cut down and it was, it was a, a, an apocalyptic dream. And so Daniel, this Hebrew exile living in Babylon, came and, and shared the, the interpretation of the dream with Nebuchadnezzar. If you were here last week, we talked about how the Most High God humbles the proud. And we saw that Daniel, this Hebrew exile in Babylon was a faithful witness to God. He spoke hard truths in love directly to the king. He, he spoke words of compassion, words of confrontation, words of wise counsel, and yet the seeds that were sown did not immediately yield fruit, and we saw that Nebuchadnezzar last week suffered hard trials in his pride. He refused to respond to the, the words of Daniel, and so he spent seven periods of time humiliated. The most powerful man who sat atop the most powerful kingdom was driven into madness, into the wet, dewy grass, thinking he was an animal eating grass. His hair grew as long as eagle's feathers. His fingernails were like claws. And he went into absolute madness. Last week, as we looked at the middle part of chapter four, we, we saw that the most high God humbles the proud. And it ended with Nebuchadnezzar being driven into madness for the seven periods of time. I like to think it's seven years. Now, between verses 33 and 34 is seven period, seven years of time, or seven periods of time. And Nebuchadnezzar chooses not to tell us about those, those seven periods of time. He tells us how that period of time of humiliation in his life came to an end. And that's where our text picks up today. Daniel chapter 4, beginning in verse 34. Let's read through the end of the chapter. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, Lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Verse 36. At the same time, my reason returned to me, says Nebuchadnezzar. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are righteous, all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Amen. The fourth chapter of Daniel ends with worship. And as we see the conclusion of the fourth chapter of Daniel, we also see the very final words spoken to us, the very final mention of King Nebuchadnezzar in the scriptures. His life, his life ends with worship. If you look at the whole fourth chapter of Nebuchadnezzar, I think verse 25 and 37 kind of give us the idea of the whole chapter. Verse 25 says at the very end of that verse that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. 
In other words, this chapter tells us our God is sovereign. He is the king of heaven. Verse 37 says he is also able to, for those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. In other words, he will not be mocked. So I think the, the overarching message here, though there's lots of messages about mission and worship, is we see that God alone is sovereign and he will not be mocked. God is able to humble those who walk in pride. He is the most high God, the king of heaven, and he demands to be worshiped. And it's interesting that we're looking at a man worship the most high God who happens to be the golden head of the statue in chapter two. He is the, the, the most powerful king who sits atop the most powerful kingdom maybe that's ever existed on planet earth today up, up to this exact moment. And yet we see him in humble submission, bowing down in worship of the king of heaven. We see Nebuchadnezzar's journey from a conquering king as the book opens up to a humble worshiper whose life has been conquered by the king of heaven. We see the faithfulness of the witness of these Hebrew exiles, Daniel and his friends, who were just young men, 17 years old, standing in the presence of Nebuchadnezzar as the book opens up and eating vegetables, being men of conviction. As the king looks at these young men of conviction, he finds them 10 times better than all the others in the kingdom. And in chapter two, as a, as a dream sends troubling waves into the heart of King Nebuchadnezzar, we see the witness of Daniel as he interprets the dream and we see we see glimpses of Nebuchadnezzar offering worship and adoration up to the God of Daniel. In chapter 4, we see him angry when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego won't bow down and worship an idol or an image that had been made that, that was to be a reflection of the kingdom and the dominion of Nebuchadnezzar. But at the end of the chapter, we see, even though he, he begun the chapter desiring to make much of himself, at the end of the chapter 3, we see Nebuchadnezzar extolling and praising this God who rescues and then in our text today, in chapter 4, we see Nebuchadnezzar worshiping the king of heaven, concerned with the most high God. Overall, I think what this text is saying to us today, as we consider this, and as we consider this on Mission Sunday, I think the implication of this text for you and for me is simply this. You and I are to lift our eyes to heaven in humble worship of the most high God. Last night was our missions banquet. We had a keynote speaker here, Pastor Kofi, who is the pastor of Redeemer Bible Fellowship that meets in, in Central Point. Kofi's a friend of mine. He's got a very interesting story. His parents were from Ghana. They immigrated to London before he was born. He was born in London. And then about seven or eight years ago, he immigrated here. But last night, Kofi told us the story of how two different missionary endeavors from two different places ended up finding their way into Ghana, Africa. And he told the story of the conversion of both of his parents, his father out of animism, his mother out of unbelief. And he stood up here on the stage last night saying, I would not be here if people hadn't gone. If the church didn't go, I wouldn't be here. He, he has a story of how mission of Christ expands and people from every tribe, tongue, language, and people group come to know Jesus. It got me thinking about those of us that are gathered here this morning. And I was wondering about your story. I was wondering, for those of you here that know Jesus and you would call yourself a follower of Christ, a born-again believer, I got to just wondering, and I know some of your stories, but I don't, most of your stories I don't know. I wonder who first told you about Jesus. I'd like for you to think about that person right now. Who first told you about Jesus? Was it a parent? He was a preacher? A friend or a teacher, maybe? A loved one, or maybe even a stranger? First told you about, the first time you began to understand the message of Christ, that God has become flesh, he has made a way for us to be forgiven and redeemed, born again into the family of God. And I wonder, 
I wonder the space of time that elapsed from the first time hearing of Jesus to when you professed him as Lord of your life. I I wonder what the circumstances were in your life when you finally laid down your life and finally surrendered your whole life over to Jesus. For those of you that have, I know I recognize there might be some of you in here who who have not yet done that. I'm very glad you're here. Were Were you seeking? Desperately seeking when finally the dots connected and you recognized that Jesus was who he said he was and you trusted him with your life? Was the gospel presented to you in a way that surprised you and out of the blue your eyes were open and you came to faith? Were you in a season of celebration or were you in a season of suffering when you came to faith? Who did God use and how did he use them in your conversion story? Because he sent someone into your life. Maybe it was a parent or a friend or a teacher or a coach or someone. He sent someone into your life. God prepared your heart to receive and respond to the good news, the good news of Jesus Christ. It's good news. I love what Kofi said last night. He's like, you know, he said, good news is on short supply right now. The gospel is good news everywhere all the time for the rich, for the poor, here and there, man or woman, young or old. And so God sent someone into the life of the person who proclaimed Jesus to you. And God sent someone into the life of the person who proclaimed Jesus to the person who proclaimed Jesus to you. And God sent someone into the life of the person who proclaimed Jesus to the person who proclaimed Jesus to the person who proclaimed Jesus to the person who proclaimed him to you. And you can follow that lineage back to Jesus Christ in Matthew 28, telling his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And Jesus said, be sure of this, I am with you always to the very end of the age. We're a part of a a movement that began with the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the commission of Jesus Christ. 2,000 years ago on the opposite side of our planet. This is a call to mission, and as we see God sending people into the mission field, we are seeing as God is sending people, it's a reflection of God's pursuing heart of people. He pursues people. Now, if you know Jesus this morning as Lord of your life, then you know the pursuit of God. He used people to proclaim the good news in his loving pursuit of you. Today we see in our text how God pursued Nebuchadnezzar, and we see how that pursuit ended with worship. God sent people into Nebi's life, Daniel and his friends, and it was through these sent out ones that God captivated this man's heart. So much so that I love the very final words of Nebuchadnezzar before he rides off into the sunset of history, the very final words, the very final title Nebuchadnezzar gives the Most High God as he calls him King of Heaven. This is the King of Again, most powerful king of the most powerful empire that's ever been on planet Earth, and he recognizes where he lines up in that pecking order. He calls the God Most High the King of Heaven. So how do we get here? Nebuchadnezzar was a king for 43 years in the Babylonian Empire. And I think it's very interesting that at the very end of his life, he's not concerned that we know his legacy. He's not concerned that we know his accomplishments. He's not concerned that his fame is made known to others. The very final act of Nebuchadnezzar's life is to make sure that we know who the king of heaven really is, not the king of Babylon. This is the conclusion of his personal testimony. Notice how here in the last 
four verses, he was kind of telling his story as a third person. And now as soon as we get into our text, verse 34, he starts back in, in, in first person language. He's using language like I and my and me. He, 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 as one commentator says, Nebuchadnezzar chooses to exit the narrative under the strength of his own voice. And just the shift in his heart is, is profound. Just in our own chapter, if you have your Bible opens, go to verse 30 again, if you will. This is our text from last week. We've got to remind ourselves of where Nebuchadnezzar's heart was. In verse 30, the king answers and he says to Nebuchadnezzar, The king answered, and here's, here's what Nebuchadnezzar says as he's walking on the roof of his palace in this opulent, gorgeous, beautiful city of Babylon. Nebi says, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty, self-exaltation. And then in verse 34, he says, I bless the most high and I praise and honored him who lives forever. We see in our text today how it is, and in the fourth chapter of Daniel, how it is this king goes from praise of self to praise of the Most High God. And we just ask what happened. How did this proud, self-exalting king go from obsession with his own kingship to worshiping the King of Heaven? Here's the first thing I would encourage you to write down. i got three things I want to share with you today. The title of my sermon is Eyes Lifted in Humble Worship. And so as we gaze upon this scene where there are eyes lifted in humble worship, the first thing we see is posture. We see the posture of the king. His eyes are lifted to God. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. At the end of seven periods of time, seven years or seven months or whatever it was, at the end of his self-obsessed life, this king lifted his eyes. And I think that's interesting that he says at the end of the days. I know they're probably talking about the seven periods of time, however many days that was. But I just think about the conversion stories I love to hear. When I talk to followers of Jesus who tell me about how they came to faith in Christ, how they were born again into the family of God, I think of their own end of the days story they, they tell. I was living for myself. I was rebellious, my back turned to God, choosing to call the shots myself. And then my eyes were open to the gospel message, to the truth of Jesus Christ, and, and the old me was nailed to the cross. And I came to the end of my days, and I was born again into the family of God. I love the language of John chapter 1. To all who did receive Jesus, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, not those who were born of the will of flesh or the will of man, but born of God. And so as we see the king here, his eyes are lifted. It just reveals his posture. And he, he is as low as you can get. His face is down in the wet grass of humiliation and madness. And after seven years, he lifts his eyes. One theologian says, at the end of seven years, the king raised his eyes toward heaven. An act of submission, surrender, and acknowledgement of his need for the Most High God. If you look at verse 33, we read that he was driven from among men into this madness, and then we have this silence. We don't know anything about those seven years, but then we see him. As his hair has grown as long as eagle feathers and his nails grow as long as animal claws, he, he lifted his eyes. The pain was necessary. 
in Nebuchadnezzar's life. The humiliation was necessary in his life. The seven years of misery were necessary. God did not waste a minute of Nebuchadnezzar's suffering. It took seven years for the man's pride to be broken, for him to come to the end of himself, for him to finally, with his face in the wet grass of madness and humiliation, for him to lift his eyes. Seven years, but God didn't waste a moment of hurt. I think of the I think of the, the prodigal son in Luke 15. When he came to himself, he arose and came to his father. I think of the Apostle Paul sharing his testimony to King Agrippa in Acts 26, where he talks about falling to the ground, hearing the voice of God, blinded, but then rising up. I think of my own story of coming to my own senses in my pursuit of Jesus. Maybe you have a similar story. I face down in the dirt of life, lifting my eyes to Jesus anew and rising and following him. Boy, I think of a friend. I have a friend from a previous church who suffered 35 years of addiction, a hopeless alcoholic, nine stints in rehab, nine stints in rehab. He was in his late 40s, crashed his car into his porch, was sleeping in the front lawn of his house when his wife came out, just so tired of his addiction. And for the 10th time, they get him on a plane, they fly him to Florida to go to a detox clinic to, to hopefully dry up and take another run up the hill. My friend Dave talks about being in misery as he's detoxifying. He's going through withdrawals in the hospital under the care of a nurse, suffering. 30 years of alcoholism, nine stints in rehab, and here he is again, suffering at the end of himself. And he tells a story about how this Jamaican nurse walks in and looks him in the eyes, and she says, oh, Davy, you must come out of the darkness and into the light. And there's something about that simple sentence that finally allowed all the dots to connect in Dave's life. He had finally hurt enough. Those are his exact words. He said, I finally had met my limit of pain, and I lifted my eyes to heaven, and I encountered the king of heaven. He went from death to life. He stepped from out of the darkness and into the light. So as we look at this story, we see, we see that the pain was necessary to condition this king to finally lift his eyes. He lifted his eyes to heaven in humble worship of the Most High God. Secondly, we see, as we look at this Seen with eyes lifted in humble worship, we see God's provision. I'd encourage you to write that down. We see God's provision. We see the reason returned to Nebuchadnezzar as a gift of God, as a provision of God. Two times in our text, Daniel says, "My reason," or the king says, rather, "My reason returned to me." We see it in verse four or thirty-four. At the end of the days, I Nebuchadnezzar lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And then in verse 36, he repeats himself. He says, at the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me. And I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. From the posture of humility, with eyes lifted to the most high God, provision was poured out by God over Nebuchadnezzar and he wasn't tempted this time to take credit. I read this week that when the king repented, God restored his kingdom and his honor, demonstrating the principle that God honors those who honor him. Three times in our text, we see this language of this word repeated of returned. And there's this other language about 
that which came to Nebuchadnezzar once he, in humble worship, lifted his eyes to heaven and began to worship. Verse 36, we see this language of things that were coming to him. His reason returned to him. The glory of his kingdom and majesty and splendor returned to him. His counselors and lords sought him. Greatness was added to him. The language that says his counselors and lords sought him. It doesn't mean that they were hunting him down and he was off somewhere far off, but they sought him out. His counselors, his lords approached him in order to restore him to his position as ruler. I can imagine it had been a brutal seven years. What do you do when the leader of the most dominant and powerful empire on earth loses his mind? What do you do? He's outside literally face down in the dewy grass thinking he's an animal utterly out of his mind. What do his counselors and his lords and his advisors in his cabinet do? They try to hold things together. I imagine it was a long seven years. I imagine it was a trying time. And then when they recognized the mind of their king had returned, that he was back and back better and stronger than before, they sought him out to restore him on his throne. And I know that God's provision can look any number of ways in the life of the believer. And sometimes God chooses to, to pour out his provision in these very measurable and obvious external ways. Sometimes he does that. I've seen him do that. I've seen him bless people with incredible blessings. The king had some measurable, observable blessings that God had poured out on him, from a, even from a worldly perspective. He said that his power and his might increased. He was actually a more powerful king after he learned to worship the Most High God. But this is a narrative, and this is a description of how it worked out for King Nebuchadnezzar. It's not a Prescription for how it always works out for the followers of Jesus, is it? I was thinking of the, the language of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 as I studied this text. The Apostle Paul, he kind of had it all. He had a world-class Ivy League religious education. He was from the right tribe. He had all the right pedigree. He had all the stuff that people in the world wanted. He was, a, he was the rich young ruler. But then as he's talking about his conversion and his pursuit of Jesus after he came to know Christ... After recounting all the power and authority and worldly wisdom he once had before his conversion, here's what Paul says about his life after choosing to follow Jesus. Philippians 3, verses 8 through 11. He says, Indeed, I, Paul, count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The apostle Paul's experience, the provision of God, was, was not a, a measurable worldly provision in the sense that people could say, oh, look, he's got more money in the bank, he's got more power, he's got more influence among his peers. That wasn't the case for Paul. He, he, he said, I, I, I wanna share, I'm going to share in the sufferings of Jesus. So the provision of God can look any number of ways. I, I was listening to the old hymn this morning, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, and I love the lyrics of that song. Listen to these lyrics. O soul, you are weary and troubled. No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him and all will be well. 
than go to a world that is dying his perfect salvation to tell. So as we look at this story of eyes being lifted in humble worship, we see the posture of the king. He's, his eyes are lifted to God. We see the provision of God, his reason returned from God. And we, we, we as begin to reflect on our own lives, we begin to think to ourselves, man, like may you and I, may we lift our eyes to heaven in humble worship of the Most High God. And then we've got to notice that the, the, whole point of the, the, the whole point of the chapter is what we see in the last, the last section here. Once this, this maddened king, this humiliated king, received his right mind, what does he elect to do? What's the first thing the king does when his right mind returns to him, once, once he lifts his eyes to heaven? Well, we see praise. He, he, worship is offered for God. His eyes are lifted in humble worship, and worship is offered for God. I think the poetry, the poetry is the portion of your text that's indented. And maybe this is a direct quote of other scripture. It's, a, it's sort of a conglomeration of other Old Testament texts. Maybe this is just the expression of worship that flowed freely from the heart of Nebuchadnezzar. But listen to the things he says about God. If you read the poetry in verse 3 and the poetry in verses 34 and 35, just those indented sections of Daniel chapter 4, the richness about who this God is is just so, it's so thick in this text. He says, I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. And then listen to what he says about who God is. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And then as he gets to the end of the chapter, the very final verse, it's, he says, like, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, He's like saying, okay, listen, so I had this experience. I, I, I had this dream, and it freaked me out, and I brought in Daniel. He told me what it meant. I didn't want to believe it. I was given 12 months of grace, and then I, I was bragging on myself, and as a consequence of my own pride, the Most High God drove me into humiliating madness for seven years, eating grass, acting like an animal, and, and the day that I humbled myself and finally hurt enough and finally lifted my eyes to heaven and worshipped him, my reason returned to me. So here, so, so what is true of Nebuchadnezzar now? In light of this encounter I've just told you about for 36 verses, what is true of me now? Well, here is how Nebuchadnezzar chose to characterize his life. The final words we hear from him in the pages of Scripture before he rides off into the sunset. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, here's who I am, here's what I do, here's how I describe myself. I, Nebuchadnezzar, I praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. He worships as a way of life. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. He offers us that final warning. He says some interesting things in his poem. He says, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. Or as another translation puts it, all the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. We talked a lot about that this week as we studied this passage on Tuesday. Kathy Johnson, our Women's Ministries Director, she, she was just kind of presenting this question to us. Like, how, how would we respond if all the scales could be peeled from our eyes and we could see God for who he really, 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 really is? If, 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 if we could have all the scales peeled back and we saw God for his bigness and his sovereignty and all the things that the king here shares about him, what, what would happen? And our, our, our conclusion was that humility would be the only natural response 
If we were to see God for who he really, really, really is, the sovereign, mighty, magnificent creator God, we would fall on our face. The only right response would be to be on our face in humble worship before him. And so when you think of that, it's kind of a bizarre thing to say all the inhabitants of the earth are as accounted as nothing. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, when compared to Mount Everest, a molehill in your backyard is accounted as nothing. When compared to the Pacific, the mud puddle in your driveway, it's accounted as nothing. When compared to a 300-foot-tall redwood, that blade of grass in your front yard, it's accounted as nothing. Compared to the holy, sovereign, mighty, righteous creator God, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And so we're left to ask this question. What would your life look like if God were to fully open your eyes to who he really, really, really is? If your finite, limited understanding of divine things, could, if that could be lifted, if God could open your eyes and my eyes and our eyes collectively to who he really, really, really is, what would our life look like? What would the world look like if the eyes of the inhabitants of the earth fully understood the magnitude of our holy, sovereign, mighty, righteous creator God? And what a prayer. What a prayer for us to pray. God, open my eyes to see you as you truly are, that I might be accounted as nothing in the shadow of your glory. Nebuchadnezzar says of God, he says, he does according to his will among the host of heaven. It's another unique phrase. What's the host of heaven? It could be the stars, the moon, the, the sun. It could be angel, angels or angelic forces, the armies of heaven. It could be both. It sort of parallels, uh, parallels what we read uh, just previously when we read of all the inhabitants of the earth, and this is talking about all the inhabitants of heaven. The reference here, though, expresses the divine dominion of God over all those in heaven and all those on earth. I read this week that God's sovereignty and power are such that none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? He's infinite and sovereign, and we are finite and weak. I'm reminded of what Isaiah says about, about the ways of God in Isaiah 55, God says through the prophet, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as heavens are higher than earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And so this is what worship of God is to look like. Remember this this entire chapter was written by Nebuchadnezzar, and in this chapter, he refers to God six times as the Most High God. He has a reference to God, refers to him in his final utterance as the King of Heaven. This is a man who no longer counts the God of the Bible as one of the gods, which is what he said in chapter 2. He no longer counts God as one of the greatest of the gods. That's what he said in chapter 3, a rescuing God. He no longer sees this God as a threat to his own glory. No, this is the language. In this benediction, these final verses, this is the language of a man who I believe, many agree with me, some don't. This is the language of a man who I believe had a saving encounter with the one true God. And that God now sits on the throne of Nebuchadnezzar's heart. He is praising and worshiping and honoring and glorifying this God. If you look at his last, if you look at the, the invocation and the benediction where he's praising God, there are 17 
references to God in, those, in the, both the introduction and the conclusion. 17 titles or personal pronouns of the Most High God. His text is saturated in God language. I mean, for a man who, who, for the previous three chapters, his language was filled with his own personal pronouns, I, me, mine. A man who was obsessed with his own greatness for the first three chapters of, of Daniel, the last few verses here are filled with God, you and yours. And we see the transition or the transformation that took place in his heart. And, and this is the question that I was asked in a book I was reading this week. And the question was asked of believers who, who are meditating on chapter 4 of Daniel. And here's the question. And I encourage you to ask yourself this question. How have I and mine been replaced by God and yours in your life? I love that question. How have I and mine been replaced by God and yours in your life? So we see eyes lifted in humble worship. We see posture, eyes lifted to God. We see provision, reason returned from God. We see praise, worship offered for God. God is the eternal King of heaven and the most high God. This is such good news. He has sent us his son. He has revealed himself to us in his son that we may know him and be forgiven by him and redeemed by him. I love what Stephen Miller in his, his commentary says in reflection of the fourth chapter of Daniel. I think I have it on the screen as well. Listen to this quote. Throughout the book of Daniel, the absolute authority of Israel's God is set forth. Such is the teaching of Scripture, a teaching that should comfort every believer today who casts a thoughtful glance upon a world in chaos and is tempted to fear. In these times, the redeemed of God must look beyond the earthly scene to heaven and remember that God still reigns, and someday he'll come and will rule directly over the kingdoms of the earth. So the implication for us today is to lift our eyes to heaven in humble worship of the Most High God. And that's where Daniel, he reveals for us in this fourth chapter by, by giving us the words of Nebuchadnezzar himself. That's where Nebuchadnezzar that's where he ended. He, he went from being a guy who was commanding in the previous chapter that these three Hebrew brothers, these three Hebrew friends bowed down and worshiped the image that he made, demanding that they bow down to him and, and, and worship the image he made or he's going to throw them in a furnace. It's the same, it's the same Nebuchadnezzar who, who looked out at the city that he lived in and said, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty, the same self-obsessed, self-worshipping king goes from that to the words we read here in this, this benediction. I bless the Most High and praise and honored him who lives forever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation and so on and so forth. So I think about God. In his pursuit of this king, God sent people into the king's life to proclaim the power of the King of Heaven to the Most High. The power, to proclaim the power of the King of Heaven, the Most High God. And that's exactly what we've been studying since we opened up Daniel eight weeks ago. We looked at the prophet Jeremiah's instructions, God's instructions to the exiles in Babylon. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in the welfare of the city you will find your own welfare. 
So Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, these faithful Hebrew men, these men who worshiped the Most High God, were sent into this pagan nation, sent into this Babylon to be witnesses for God to these people, to do a productive work that God had for them as they witnessed for him in Babylon. And that's the same language Peter uses of us today. We are exiles. We are sojourners here, sent into a modern-day Babylon to be witnesses of the Most High God to the world around us. This is Mission Sunday. And just as God used, sent out people in his pursuit of the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar back then, God uses, sent out people today in his pursuit of people here and now. Like Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, God, our Savior, desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of that truth. So we're exiles. I know we've been saying this, but I want to say it again. We're exiles here in the Rogue Valley. This is not where we belong. Our, our citizenship is in heaven. For those of us that know Christ as Lord, we belong to a, a different kingdom. We're a part of a, a heavenly kingdom. And so as we live here on earth uh, uh, in this modern-day Babylon, we are exiles here today, and we've been sent here into this city for the welfare of the city, for the glory of God to be on mission for him. We're sent out ones. We are to be God's hands and feet as he pursues the people of Jackson County and beyond through his people. Last night, if you were at our missions conference, we spoke of our international partnerships. We spoke of what we're doing in Uganda, in the city of Umbarara, in this church planting network called Oasis of Hope to plant gospel preaching churches that are making disciples of Jesus in western Uganda. We have a rich and vibrant partnership in Uganda. We have a budding and new relationship happening with Helping Hands in Mexico, where we're doing missional work. We're, we're, we're doing humanitarian work and then missional work side by side for the glory of God in Mexico. And today, this morning, we want to share about what we believe God is calling us to do here in our city, in the city of Medford and beyond, in Jackson County, in the Rogue Valley, what he's doing in our neighborhoods. And so we have prayerfully and carefully selected four local partners. These four gospel-rich ministries serve a cross-section of our community. And so when you look at all four of these different ministries we're going to highlight here this morning, there are people who are doing meaningful gospel work in our city with a variety of folks. Today we're formally announcing our church, a partnership with Mercygate, who we've partnered with for many years, Southern, Acts, Southern Oregon Acts of Kindness, 715 Ministries, and the Medford Gospel Mission. I want you to hear about how God is using these ministries for his glory, but I don't want you to hear it from me. I want you to hear it from them. So take the next few moments and listen to the heart of the men and women who lead these ministries in our city and begin to imagine how God might be calling you to be a part of what he is doing through these ministries as a sent out exile for the glory of God. Jesus took all of our of faith and put them into two actions. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love their neighbor as yourself. Now this is easy to say, but far more challenging to do. Mercy's Gate was created as a way for people inside churches to meet their neighbors with deep needs who are outside the church. No man plans for his wife to harm him so severely that he suffers a stroke and can no longer be a roofer. No single parent living paycheck to paycheck plans for one child after another to get sick, forcing her to miss weeks of work, leaving a gap in pay. No woman plans to be threatened and disrespected at work and then have her report ignored by that company, causing her to continue to feel unsafe on the job. Stories like these represent many of those that we serve. 
People working hard but thrown off kilter by an unexpected event or crisis that puts them at risk of losing everything. Some of those we help have incomes too high to qualify for help from government-funded agencies. These agencies can only take into account the last year's annual income, not the current separation, divorce, garnishment, domestic violence, or illness. As we at Mercy's Gate offer assistance and resources, we want our interactions to be a catalyst for reconciling people to God, others, and self, to counter the doubt of God's presence and the conflicting voice that inside says, there's no hope and I'll never succeed. Mercy's Gate remains a ready-made way to connect with people in need, your neighbors. We invite you to come in and sit in on a couple meetings to see if Mercy's Gate could be a way for you to meet them. Come and discover what opportunities await you in sharing God's love with others. And don't worry, Mercy's Gate does the heavy lifting, screening calls and qualifying clients for those meetings. One of my favorite Bible characters, Caleb, is a man who when he turns 80 says, Give me more! I have so much more to do! As if he's saying, I'm just getting started. How about you and me? Are we just getting started? If you're looking for adventure and the more, come join us. I promise you, this is adventure. Engaging in what Jesus asked us to do, love on our neighbors going through difficult times. If you're struggling, like there is this great place out there. I had no idea until I finally had no choice but to reach out because I was like, it's either this or I could be homeless and I don't want to be homeless. Executive Director of East 71 Five Ministries. What is 71 Five? Well, I'm sure you're aware young people are struggling with hopelessness, abandonment, and some are just bored. 71 Five helps with that. We provide safe spaces, trusting relationships, and a message of hope. Safe spaces where young people feel they belong. Trusting relationships where a confident, caring adult walks alongside the child and a message of indestructible and eternal hope. Since 1964, we were Rogue Valley Youth for Christ, a chapter of YFC USA. We were a chapter until 2018 where we separated due to the fact that they would only allow us to work with young people from the ages of 11 to 19. And we would have had to end programming to about 400 young people. Our board was unwilling to do that, and so we became an independent organization at that time. 71.5, where does the name come from? Well, it comes from Psalm 71.5, which says, Lord God, you are my hope. I've trusted you since I was young. That verse speaks very much to our mission. Our mission is stated as 71.5 exists to share God's story of hope with young people through trusting relationships in any relevant way. And our byline is trust to hope. And that's really what we focus on, is building trusting relationships that bring hope. And that trusting relationship, that person, points to where we find hope, and that being in Jesus. And so trust points them to trust in Jesus where they find that eternal and indestructible hope. We accomplish this mission in a variety of programs. 
715 Campus, and 715 City. Near school campuses or in neighborhoods, we provide youth centers where we offer fun activities, opportunities to build trusting relationships, and thoughtful discussions that lead toward God's story. 715 Camp. It's an opportunity for young people to experience new friendships, outdoor adventure, fireside chats, and times of solitude that lead them to the heart of God. 715 Justice. We engage young people in the correctional system by providing Sunday chapels, thoughtful discussion groups, and mountain biking for those who are not in detention. We bring the light of hope into the lives of young people trapped in dark places. 715 Mentors. We provide a formalized relationship between a struggling young person and a competent, caring adult willing to share their life on a consistent basis. 715 Parents. We reach primarily expectant and parenting teens and their children, providing mentoring support, life skills training, and tips for healthy parenting. In 715 Parents, we bring hope into the lives of two generations at once. 715 Botech. This is a BOLI, an Association of General Contractors, certified pre-apprenticeship program. We provide the opportunity for occupational exploration, learning life skills and technical aptitude with case management for connection to employment of furthering their education. And of course, leading them towards the hope found in Jesus. Young people are struggling. They feel discouraged and depressed at a level we have never seen before because they are purposeless and hopeless. But this creates an opportunity like we've never seen before. They are hungry for authentic love and hope. Jesus came to earth and we read how he got messy, touching lepers and unclean people. Would you follow his example and open your life to a kid? It will get messy, but we support you in the mess. We'll teach you all about young people and how to easily share your hope in Jesus. You've heard Jesus say, go and make disciples. Well, we want to help with that. So we say, come and make disciples. That's 71.5. Thank you. Hi, my name is Jason Winningham, and it is my privilege to be able to share with you today about Southern Oregon Acts of Kindness. SOAK was established in 2022 with the goal of connecting the unchurched and the de-churched of the Rogue Valley with a local church body, and ultimately with Jesus. The way we accomplish this mission is by connecting our volunteers from various church congregations with our needs that we see in the community. In the last year, we have had the opportunity to connect our volunteers with many different types of needs. But regardless of the service that we were providing, we left every family with the same message, that they are loved. They're loved by their local church community and they're loved by Jesus. And if they want to connect further, we leave them with the service times and the contact information of the churches that support this ministry. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are God's masterpiece, created anew in Christ Jesus to do the good works that he has planned for us from long ago. We believe that God is already lining up an opportunity for you to serve and connect somebody in need with the love of Jesus. Southern Oregon is our community for Christ and our mission field. If you would like to learn more, please go to www.soactsofkindness.org. That's www.so axe of kindness.org
The Medford Gospel Mission is all about reaching the lost and gathering the reached. People lost in the cycle of poverty, marginalized, forgotten, affected by trauma, addictions, and dependence. These people are stuck relying on the ways of the world, isolated from God, His people, and the local church. We reach these men and women and we gather them into a new way of life, a new way of thinking, a new way of living that breaks the unhealthy dependencies that has them trapped. Most importantly, we gather them into the life of local churches right here in our community. So the beauty of what we do here at the Medford Gospel Mission is that people come to us that are in poverty to the point of homelessness that are here because of broken relationship. So we want to come alongside them as a discipleship program and help them restore with the relationship with God, with their relationship with themselves, and their relationship with others and creation or work. So God created us to love Him and to obey His design. So we come alongside them and point them to a church. Um, we do Bible studies, uh, we do classes, we have chapel service to help restore the relationship with God. So living in a micro community, we learn about how to restore one another and relationship with one another. And finally, at the last part of our phase, it's with creation or work. God didn't just design us to sit here and get handouts. He designed us to work and to glorify Him in all that we're doing. So to bring glory to God through our work and to take our gifts out into the world and to bring glory and praise to Jesus. So coming to the gospel mission, you get restoration in your wholeness as an individual with your relationship with God, self, others, and creation. What we practice here is asset-based community development. And what that looks like in the context of the mission is checking people in off the streets, people who are homeless, low-income, or those who are just burnt out in life, and they come into the mission um, and they do our program where they find out where their assets are. Those are gifts and abilities that God has given them, which by the way, He's given to all people because all people are made in His image. We want to know what do you love doing? Not just what can you do, but what do you really love to do? God has placed that in your hearts and in your mind. And so these gifts, abilities, and assets are how people flourish. Um, and we try to come alongside them and find out, well, what are those? Maybe you know what they are, maybe you don't. Come to the mission and find out and see where you'll be fulfilled and where you can really participate with brothers and sisters in the Lord and um, have opportunity in ministering in that way. The state of poverty in our community isn't hopeless because God will continue to restore lives through His work and the work of His people until He returns. We would love for you to join us in this work. And by His grace, together we will continue to reach the lost and gather the reached and make an incredible difference for God in our community. Give those ministries a hand, please. We are so very excited to be partnering with these local gospel-minded ministries in our community. We don't need to reinvent the wheel as a church. We see where God is at work in our community. We seek to join him where he is already at work, and that's what these partnerships are about. You know, at Heritage, we define a disciple as someone who has faith in Jesus, who is growing in the likeness of Jesus, and who is leading others to follow Jesus. We think a disciple is all three of those things. You have a vibrant faith in Christ. You're being molded and shaped and formed into the image of Christ, and you're putting your hand to the work of being missional for the glory of God, leading others to follow Christ. This is a part of discipleship. We cannot sit on our hands with the gospel message and call ourselves disciples of Jesus. We are called to get up off our, our, our hands, get up out of our seats, and go into the world around us with the message of Jesus Christ. This is what a disciple is 
does. A while ago, we did this sermon series here called Giving the Greatest Gift, and we talked about a simple strategy of seeing the stranger as neighbor, seeing the neighbor as friend, and leading the friend into the family of God. This is simply by joining with these local partnerships. It's ways for us to do that. It's a pathway for us to do that in our own community, to see the stranger as neighbor, to see the neighbor as friend, and to lead the friend into the family of God. What an awesome opportunity do we have to partner with these organizations as a church. I started my sermon today by asking you to consider who those people were in your life who have made a difference in your life. Who, are the, who was the person who shared Jesus with you initially? Who was the person who God sent into your life as a reflection of his pursuit for you? Who spoke the truth of Jesus into your life, whether it was a parent or a friend or a coach or a coworker or a neighbor? Now, someone who knows Jesus, you, you have the opportunity to be that person in the life of another. You've been given the greatest message, the message of Jesus, the message that saves, the message that, re that redeems, the message that restores. We have a God who is worthy of praise, as we see spelled out in the, the, the poetry of Nebuchadnezzar at the beginning and the end of this chapter. And, and I said last week, I said last week, what if you are the closest thing to Jesus in someone's life? And what if God has knitted you together, shaped and formed you, orchestrated the days of your life, has put you where he's put you, in the neighborhood he's put you in, with the ministry he's put you in. What if God has put you in a place where he wants you, he has called you to be the voice of Jesus in someone's life? And I believe that's true. If you know Jesus is Lord today, if he is your savior, I, I don't think there's a debate here. God has called you and commissioned you to be his hands and feet in some way or another in someone else's life. We're trying to provide pathways for that with our local partners trying to always encourage and embolden us as a body to be missional with our neighbors. So I'm excited about what the Lord is doing in our life. And I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to, to manipulate. I just feel like, church, we've got our 75% of Jackson County identifies as non-religious or post-Christian. You know that. This is one of the most de-churched, unchurched, unbelieving areas in the entire United States. Like, we, we have to be on mission for Jesus. It's not... An option. This is just another way that we can begin to mobilize ourselves as a church for the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so grateful for what you're doing in our midst. God, here at this, this local church, God, in the lives of the people at Heritage Christian Fellowship, God, as we got to just hear just very briefly in these four organizations, God, these four ministries, the work you're doing through them, God, I thank you for the men and women and the leadership at, at Mercy Gate. God, I thank you for the, the, the leadership at Southern Oregon Acts of Kindness. God, I thank you for the, the men and women and the leadership at, at 715 Ministries and at Medford Gospel Mission, God. Thank you that you, you are giving us avenues and opportunities and pathways where we can begin to live out the Great Commission, where we can begin to see the neighbor as, or the stranger as neighbor and the, the neighbor as friend and lead these friends into the very family of God. Would you, Lord, continue to grow a heart of go in our heart as a church, God? God, we want the world to know. God, we want the Rogue Valley to know how great thou art. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.